The scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 23. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Please turn in your Bibles now to the sermon text. Luke 22, verses 35 to 38. Luke 22, verses 35 to 38. This is the word of the Lord. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now... Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now pray the Lord's blessing on the preaching of it. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this is your holy word. We ask, O Lord, that you would now please bless its preaching. Please bless the one who preaches and bless those who hear. And we pray these things for your glory and for our own good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
On December 29th of last year, a relatively young man with a criminal past walked into a Fort Worth church and murdered two church members in cold blood. Two of your brothers in the faith, members of the same visible church, were gunned down by a man who apparently targeted them because of their faith. Now, because another man of this man's ilk had not long ago entered a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, and had murdered 26 people and injured several more, Christians like you and me in churches across this state were given permission to allow their members to carry guns on their persons in church. As a result, the gunman in White Settlement was only able to kill two of your brothers before he himself was shot, and the horror ended right then and there, within five seconds after he first opened fire. Without doubt, if you watch the tape, the gunman intended to murder still others in that congregation. Imagine for a second what the news would have reported had Jack Wilson, had he not been there that day, with his firearm. Brothers and sisters, that can happen here. Brothers and sisters, that can happen anywhere. Now, you may say to yourself, in times such as these, that if such is God's will, there's nothing I can or even should try to do about it. But I am here to tell you today that that is not a biblical attitude to adopt. Such an attitude does not come from our Lord or his apostles, but from philosophical notions of fatalism, very different from the doctrine of God's sovereignty that is taught in the scriptures. I'm going to impart biblical truth today that I know some of you may find uncomfortable. But so be it. Ministers of Christ are to give comfort to those who do mourn or suffer, not to those who may err. I've divided today's sermon into four parts. The first, called Let Him Buy a Sword, will expound today's text. The second, called Calvinism versus Fatalism, We'll discuss the difference between those two ideas. Then we'll introduce the distinction between God's will of decree and his will of precept, which will in turn introduce the third section, called the Sixth Commandment, in which we shall consider the relevance and application of the Sixth Commandment to Christians and indeed to all mankind. And then we shall close with a concluding section called Sword Control. So the first section, let him buy a sword. 
Our Lord issues a command to his disciples in this passage. It is a command that receives little acknowledgement in the church, in my experience. Probably in yours as well. It is a command, and it is in our Bibles. And it is a clear command. As I said, it's a command to his disciples, namely you. The disciples of Christ are to state the matter succinctly and upfront, to obtain weapons and to carry them, and in need to use them in self-defense as they go about their father's business in this world. That is the substance of this command and its application for you and me. Now, I can relate this as the sum and the substance of this kingly imperative delivered to the church for all time for several reasons. Our Lord prefixes this command by asking his disciples, look at the, look at the passage, asking his disciples about their prior activities. He asks about what sort of preparations that they had undertaken in times past to secure themselves against bodily need. They affirm that they took no precautions, nor made any provision at all for their physical needs. Then our Lord says, and you did not suffer any want, but, he in effect goes on to say, that was then, this is now. That's how things were then, but now, going forward, these shall be your standard operating procedures. But now is the phrase that signals this change in policy. He is here laying out new marching orders for his disciples. That is the first reason that we should understand this as currently applicable. This new policy that he established for his disciples, and there is no record of a change in this policy, to my knowledge, in Scripture. And we shall see better how this command to obtain weapons and carry them applies to all of us, not just the apostles. By how Christ phrases his command. If he had phrased it, you shall obtain a sword, you might at least have an argument that the command was to be understood as applying to his immediate audience alone. But he looks to his disciples and he says to them instead, let him who has no sword get one. This third person imperative aorist construction conveys a gnomic that is a proverbial quality in this command. A command that would apply universally to all of his disciples. It's like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Let a man examine himself then about discerning the Lord's body in the sacrament. Such a third-person imperative construction communicates a sort of standing order for the church. So in conjunction with the contrasting language of but now, it becomes clear that this participle, or excuse me, this this construction conveys a principle for living in a fallen world that all his disciples were thenceforth to heed. 
But now, brothers and sisters, a natural question will present itself to you, no doubt. What conceivable use would disciples of Jesus have for swords? War? Executions? Perhaps armed rebellion against the Romans? Why did Jesus command this? Just war theory notwithstanding, those uses are highly doubtful. As the uses for swords, Christ had in mind at the moment he issued this charge. The context actually suggests that self-defense is the reason for the command, as I intimated before. For as you need provisions to maintain the life and health of the body, the money bag for buying food, and wine, and other necessaries of life. So in our Lord's mind, we also need a sword to defend our bodies. All of those needs present themselves to his disciples in this fallen world. Indeed, why else? Why else? I put the question to you. Why else would our Lord command his disciples right here in this text before you to carry weapons? if not to maintain their lives against the violent. The context then, as I said, informs us of his intent behind this command. Where I said before, you shall make no preparations, now I say, be prepared. Now let's pause for a moment to consider some predictable objections. You may be tempted right now to retort. Well, Peter used one of these very swords to try to defend Jesus. And Jesus rebuked him. So how could he be commanding us to obtain weapons for the purpose of self-defense? I reply that it was not for the weapon's possession or use that Peter was rebuked, but in how and why Peter used it. Brothers and sisters, firstly, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that Christ came into this world not only to teach of the kingdom and not only to obey God's commandments on our behalf, but actually came into this world to die for our sins. Peter erred there, as he had once before, in trying to prevent the physical death of the Redeemer. He once replied with a kind of God forbid at the prospect of Jesus' violent death. And Jesus defined Peter's error, as we saw, as satanic. For to prevent his death at the appointed time would be to derail God's plan of redemption. In other words, once his time had come, to prevent Christ's death would be the only time that preventing the unjustified taking of innocent human life Only time that would be wrong. And therefore, defending innocent life would not be required of Peter, nor laudable in that case. Now, another objection might might make reference to the specific words of Jesus' rebuke. His rebuke to Peter. When Peter indulged that preemptively aggressive act when he cut off Malchus' ear. Namely, the statement... Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. 
But those words should be understood to apply against all those who live a life devoted to violence, devoted to aggression. And so that rebuke would not have in its crosshairs those who would defend innocent life with a sword. To apply this rebuke to all who would own and carry a weapon for defensive uses under normal circumstances would force a contradiction to emerge from God's mouth, as we see in this command of Christ in Luke today, and as we shall again see before we can conclude. Additionally, when John the Baptist was asked by soldiers how they ought to live, what ought they to do, John the Baptist did not reply that they should lay down their weapons and become pacifists, but that they should be content with the wages that the army was then paying them. Think about the implications of that. Now, another objection might emerge. If you have ever drawn an all-comprehending principle of absolute pacifism from our Lord's words at Matthew 5.39 about turning the other cheek. But such a principle not only runs against our understanding of the sixth commandment, as we'll see, and not only makes the text today into an unsolvable riddle, it also misses the point of that divine command entirely. Let's turn to that passage for a moment. Let's turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 and verse 39. Matthew 5:39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Who has said that? Who was it that said that? It was Moses in giving the law to Israel. So is Jesus disputing with Moses? Is he taking issue with the law? Well, hardly. He is addressing a Jewish misuse and misapplication of that law. You see, that law was given as a general principle, a general principle to follow in the administration of justice, the formal system of criminal justice in Israel. This lex talionis principle, eye for an eye, it's a principle that lays out a requirement of proportionality the punishment, brothers and sisters, simply must fit the crime. Judges in Israel were thus commanded to avoid undue disproportionality in meeting out penalties. But Jewish tradition had warped this principle of criminal justice into a standard for conducting their personal lives, into a standard that they could adopt that would allow them to retaliate against all of their enemies for perceived personal offenses and wrongs. They misused this criminal law principle to justify that personal conduct. So our Lord is saying 
that we are not free to adopt a private policy of retaliation over real or perceived personal affronts. He is not saying that we may not defend ourselves against a knife-wielding maniac or a crazed gunman who wants to kill us and our family or our church family. And a slap, literal or figurative, consider well, brothers and sisters, is not a bullet, is not a blade either. No one ever died from a slap on the cheek. A deadly attack is not what's in view in this text. And even if he is being literal here, the amount of force that's used here in our Lord's mind, this slap, is the amount of force that permits its sufferer to live on so that he might turn his other cheek. But being literal would limit the principle too much. What's at play here is suffering an affront by our neighbor. Being willing to suffer an insult, being long-suffering in our personal relations, and not seeking to respond tit for tat when others offend or trespass against us. Here summarized as a mere slap on the cheek. And this is hardly equivalent to a life-and-death encounter with a murderous assailant. And to take our Lord's principle here in such a wooden and literal fashion would, in the name of consistency and honesty, require us to carry that hermeneutic, that interpretive principle into the neighboring command that we not resist evil to. By the way, the Greek there is ambiguous, whether it is to be rendered as evil or the evil one. So abortion is evil. But I'm sorry, we cannot resist that Because our Lord says we can't resist evil. Rape, genocide, you name it. These things are evil. But we can't resist them because of what our Lord says in this place. No, our Lord is telling us, and that generation especially, that the criminal law principle of proportionality between crime and punishment must not, as it had been, be warped into a personal policy of retaliation over perceived wrongs in our personal relations. Okay, let us now, returning to our sermon text, Luke 22, verses 35 to 38. Let us consider for a moment the word sword, which translates the Greek word makairon. In this period of history, The word refers to a sword generically, but in all likelihood, it refers to the 16-inch Roman legionary sword of the Pompeian type. This type of sword was very current at that time, and this type of sword would be easily concealable. We shall come to that later. It is the same word, brothers and sisters, that was used for the sword wielded by the Roman magistrate in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13 and verse 4. There, the magistrate possesses the machiron to maintain societal peace and order. But for Christ's disciples, the use would clearly be self-defense in a dangerous world. So Christ commands his disciples to obtain what is in fact, at that time, a current military weapon with which to defend themselves. 
He tells us to buy one and, if need be, sell something in order to be able to buy one. This is, again, an imperative mood in the Greek. It is a command, (laughs) brothers and sisters. It is a command to you. Now, pacifists are presented with a real problem with this passage today, this command, obviously. But so are fatalists. Which brings us to the next section of today's message. Calvinism versus fatalism. Some in the church may assume that they need not obtain or carry weapons because such would be not only to be unspiritual in some way, but would also perhaps be to fail to entrust themselves to God's sovereign will. That if it's their time, then it's their time. And to try to defend defend oneself or one's family would, to this frame of mind, be tantamount to opposing God's will. One major difference, however, between a biblical concept of divine sovereignty on the one hand and philosophical fatalism or determinism on the other hand is to appreciate the important distinction between God's will of decree and God's will of precept. Calvinism makes this distinction, while fatalism or bare determinism does not. You see, God's hidden decrees are not your concern. What he has ordained shall come to pass. We cannot change or affect that, or even know it beforehand. But his commandments and his precepts, that is his revealed will, such is our concern. So we can never indulge the thought that, well, if God has decreed that I or my spouse or my kids are to die by the hands of a violent man, so be it. And then go on from that to conclude that, therefore, I will not arm myself and be prepared to defend myself or them. And this is because we would then be trying to crawl around inside of God's hidden decrees and actually ignoring his explicit commands, like the one in today's text. As Moses put it at Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. And brothers and sisters, we don't seem to fall prey to fatalism in other situations, rank determinism in other contexts, in other areas of our lives, do we? For instance, God requires husbands and fathers to work to provide for their families as best they can. Do Christian husbands then say, well, if God wants me to work, he will just give me a job. So I don't need to actively look for a job or prepare my resume well. Or God can get me a job if he wills it. And so he can also drive me to the interview. And then he could just drive me to work every day himself if I get the job, after he wakes me up every morning without the benefit of an alarm. After all, if God willed me to be on time to work, he would wake me up on time himself. Or, to confront another line of thought in this strain, do we refuse to have fire extinguishers or fire alarms about us because we know that God is sovereign? And he can protect us from fire. 
the same sort of fatalistic, fatalistic thinking would be plaguing us then. If we adopted the attitude that if God wants my family to be defended from the violent, he will defend them by his sovereignty and his power. No, brothers and sisters. All our confidence in God, all our surrendering to his will, counts for naught if we ignore his revealed will. Our duty is to God's commandments, not to presume upon or anticipate his hidden decrees. It is an unbiblical sort of piety that closes its ears to God's commands in the name of trusting in God or his will. His commands are his will. That will with which you and I have to do. And this brings us to the next part of today's sermon. The sixth commandment. This divine command in Luke is not the only commandment of Christ the King respected this, respecting this positive duty of self-defense. The sixth commandment, which, as we know, prohibits murder, in fact, not only requires us to defend ourselves, it also requires us to protect the innocent. In keeping with the maximalist approach that our Lord takes with respect to his commandments, the Reformed Church, including the Presbyterian Church, interprets the Sixth Commandment not only to require that we refrain from murder, but that we defend and protect the lives of the innocent. I'm going to read to you from Westminster Larger Catechism 135. What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any by just defense thereof against violence and, it concludes, protecting and defending the innocent. This interpretation of the Sixth Commandment imposes a positive duty upon us all to defend life against violence and actively to protect and defend innocent life. It does not teach a mere negative duty, simply to refrain from something, to refrain from murder. The Sixth Commandment, moreover, like the rest of the Ten Commandments, is a summary of the moral law of God. The moral law doth bind all, according to chapter 19 of this church's confession. And so this duty falls on all, male and female, both within and without the church. The duty to protect and defend innocent life is a duty laid on all humanity of all time. Be grateful that we still enjoy some semblance of ability to obey this divine precept. Many people, even in this country, are forbidden by the laws of men to own or to carry guns on their persons. And so they may not, according to the laws of men, fulfill this duty to protect innocent life in what is in fact an age of firearms. 
Which brings us to the final section of today's sermon. Sword control. In point of fact, brothers and sisters, the Roman Empire outlawed the carrying of swords by subject people like the Jews on pain of death. This law was enacted sometime between 35 BC and AD 5. Now why would our Lord command that his disciples, his immediate audience, being then under Roman rule, why would he care, order them to carry swords when such was illegal? How dare God command man, I suppose we must also ask, when man forbids. The sixth commandment requires all mankind to protect and to defend innocent life. Christ commands his disciples to use a standard military weapon for self-defense. In an age of firearms, when the violent have access to firearms, these commands can only be obeyed by obtaining and becoming proficient in the use of firearms. But looking at the commands in the first century context, what were his disciples to do then? When the Roman government outlawed their possession of these weapons. When the Romans had implemented sword control. Well, Peter sums it up in another context. With a different prohibition that was issued by man and conflicted with a command of God. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John said there, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. This is why I believe the two swords in the possession of Christ's disciples that day were carried concealed. If they were going to obey God rather than man and carry weapons even when it was punished with the death penalty, why advertise? They were concealing them, brothers and sisters, from the Roman government. So if you were to obtain firearms legally today in obedience to these divine commands only to learn tomorrow that your government had outlawed such arms. What would you be obligated to do? In Romans 13, which I referred to earlier, Peter, or excuse me, Paul tells us to submit to the governing authorities and that the magistrate is God's minister. So if gun control laws hit your town or state or country, should you submit to them? Should that happen? I need not tell you explicitly today what to do. I only direct you to consider the passage in Luke, today's sermon text, to remember the sixth commandment, knowing that a magistrate is acting beyond his authority and without divine warrant when he outlaws what God commands or commands what God forbids. And that when he acts in such a way, he no longer acts as God's minister at all. In short, I will borrow here the ubiquitous phrase of the Puritans respecting what I've told you today. You are wise and know how to apply it. As it is, however, the case that these divine commands do not at present conflict with the laws of Texas in most cases, I'll close with a couple of questions. The latter, adapted from our text today, 
followed by a restatement of our Lord's revealed will. First, honestly, if you have some issue with this command in Luke, if you want to deny its application to you today, whether because you've just never thought of this before, and the notion being strange and new to you sounds incredible, or for any other reason, I simply ask you in all seriousness, do you think it would have been better and more Christian? And the proper approach to this question, for Jack Wilson, the member of that church's security team who fired back and ended the murderous rampage in White Settlement, not to have ended it with his own gun on December 29th. Would it been better, would it have been better or more Christian of him not to have had a pistol concealed under his coat that day? I maintain that his going about armed and the other members of that church who similarly went about armed was in obedience to these charges in Scripture. Do you disagree? If so, do you understand the practical, real-world effect of what you are saying? For Jack Wilson, church member, protected the innocent lives of other people that day. Now I put a second question to you. Have you no sword? Our Lord commands... Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please equip us, enable us to understand and apply your word. We ask that you would continue to shine the light of your wisdom upon us, Help us, O Lord, to walk in obedience. Increase our understanding always, O Lord. Help us to trust ourselves to you in the way you would have us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.